Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast from the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Dante Ye, one of your co-hosts for this series. In this episode, we'll be taking an in-depth look into the current article, Use of Direct Oral Anticoagulant and Associated Bleeding and Thrombotic Complications After Lower Extremity Bypass. I'm honored to be joined by the lead and senior authors, Dr. Danielle Sutsko, a vascular surgeon from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Dr. Andrea Obi, a vascular surgeon from the University of Michigan. Danielle and Andrea, thank you for joining me today. Before we begin, do either of you have any potential conflicts of interest to disclose? No, I don't. No, I don't. Great, great. So we can speak freely. Dr. Sutsko, can you give us a brief summary of your study design and describe to us your main findings? Yeah, definitely. So for this study, you know, we're both vascular surgeons and we treat patients with a lot of um, occlusive disease in their lower extremities called peripheral arterial disease. And so we're performing some high-risk lower extremity bypasses in a lot of these patients. And um, when they have high-risk lower extremity bypasses, and we kind of define that as potentially having a conduit that's not um, as good as like a robust vein where we have to use prosthetic or they have poor runoff or outflow, a lot of these patients, we will therapeutically anticoagulate after doing a lower extremity bypass. And it used to be that everyone would get heparin and then eventually Coumadin. Um, however, with the kind of the new direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs, we started to see that some of our patients, we would actually prescribe them therapeutic DOACs um, postoperatively for these high-risk bypasses. So it got us thinking that we wanted to look into this to see you know, how many other institutions are doing this? How common is it? And then how are these patients really doing when you look at their outcomes? So we actually used the vascular quality initiative to perform this study. Um, that is a quality initiative um, that has about 16 different registries. And one of which is the infrainguinal lower extremity bypass registry. And it um, includes many centers from around the country. And there's quite a few procedures that are logged within it. And um, what you're able to do is look at the vascular quality initiative and apply for VQI application approval for a certain study. So we applied and got approval to use the vascular quality initiative to kind of answer this question. And what we were looking at is we wanted to determine temporal trends in the DOAC prescription following infrainguinal lower extremity bypass, the impact, what that had on length of stay. And we also wanted to look at what the associated bleeding and thrombotic complications were in patients were, that were either anticoagulated with DOACs or vitamin K antagonists, which is more the traditional anticoagulation. So within our study, you know, there's about 24,000 lower extremity bypasses performed during that study. And the cohort of our patients that were prescribed newly anticoagulants were actually a little less than 3000 because they are more rare types of bypasses. About 2000 were in the VKA group and about 584 had uh, DOACs. 
And we looked over the study period, we saw that DOAC utilization increased throughout the um, study period. And we also noted that there was no significant bleeding difference with the VKA versus DOAC groups, which we were um, very excited to find. And really that was our hypothesis. Um, and then the graft occlusion, we also found no significant difference between. And then finally, in terms of length of stay, there definitely was a shorter length of stay in the DOAC group compared to the vitamin K antagonist group, which was also kind of what um, our hypothesis had been. So in summary, you know, we were able to use the BQI, we were able to look at this question and really up to this date has really been the only study looking at this comparison with therapeutic anticoagulation for DOAX versus VKA. Great. Thank you for that summary. So, so if I'm understanding this correctly, um, it, it appears that the temporal trends over time are that DOAC use is increasing and that using the large database that you queried, you could find no obvious indication that the uh, thrombotic or the bleeding complications were dissimilar between the, the two interventions. Is that correct? Correct. Um, Dr. Obi, are you, do you know of any randomized controlled trials on this topic? Is, are there any, is there any other higher level of evidence than, than a well-controlled um, large database study? Thanks. That, so I think that's an absolutely wonderful question. And I really, really wish there was a randomized control trial for these patients. Um, there's sort of a, I don't want to say a forgotten, but maybe an underrepresented subset of PAD patients. So probably about 10%, at least that's what we found in our study or less um, of these patients will require therapeutic anticoagulation after a bypass. So the vast majority of patients don't require anticoagulation. And these other patients, the other 90% have actually been fairly well studied um, as, as it relates to very low dose anticoagulants, um, either just in relation to their disease state or in relation to post-operative care. And what I'm referring to are two trials. One is called the COMPASS trial and the other is called the Voyager trial. The COMPASS trial looked at patients with a combination of coronary disease and peripheral arterial disease and the utility of very low dose rivaroxaban in preventing um, MACE and MALE, so major adverse cardiovascular events and major adverse limb events, and found that there was risk reduction with this very low dose of anticoagulant. Um, and then similarly, similarly there was um, uh, the same finding found in the Voyager trial, which was specifically looking at patients post-procedure. But there is no trial really that looks at patients who need therapeutic anticoagulation. And if you look at the NCT um, trial database, what you find is there's really no ongoing trial that is going to evaluate the use of full dose DOACs in this patient population. Now, there are um, a few trials ongoing looking at this, but it's not in our peripheral arterial patients. So there is a trial looking at patients who are undergoing coronary bypass surgery, and then looking at um, whether there is a difference in patients who receive a full dose vitamin K antagonist versus a DOAC after that type of surgery, but nothing as it relates to limb bypasses. And honestly, um, we need this data because I don't know if a trial will ever be done. I think practically it would be very hard to enroll the number of patients you would need just because it is a low fraction of patients who are undergoing bypass. And secondly, um, as endovascular therapy becomes more predominant, less and less patients are receiving, uh, you know, or fewer and fewer, I should say, are receiving um, these peripheral bypasses, especially the more risky ones. Great, great, thank you. So, so just to clarify on a point you made earlier, you, you used the term very low dose. 
Um, and so what were the doses that were used in the Voyager uh, trial? And, and what do you, can you tell from your database what the average dose of for the river oxaban in your study? If not, then tell me what do you use in clinical practice when, when you, you uh, want to prescribe it for this indication? Right, so that's an excellent question. The very low dose um, that was used in the COMPASS trial and the Voyager trial refers to the 2.5 milligram dose of rivaroxaban, which if you can imagine the prophylactic dose just for VTE is five milligrams. So it's a very, <laughs> it's a very low dose of anticoagulant. Um, when I use this in my own practice, I think you have two options. One is to use the VTE dosing, which is for venous disease, and the other is to use the AFib dosing. Both are considerably higher than this 2.5 dose. I tend to use the um, the AFib dosing just because you don't need to have um, a lead-in period where you, the patient receives a higher dose and then they have to drop down. It's just you know sort of even dosing. Um, and then your other question, what can we tell from our database? So when we were in the process actually of doing this work, we found out something that was very interesting about the VQI data set. And there are two major flaws with it that we're working with um, the VQI to correct. So one of the flaws with the data set is that it actually only collects on two of the direct oral anticoagulants. It collects on rivaroxaban and dabigatran, and we couldn't find any information on apixaban or doxaban, which are the other two that are approved in the U.S. for use. Um, so we don't have data on those. We could tell there was this other column, but we couldn't tell which drug was in there. And the second thing is we couldn't tell the intensity of the dosing. So we couldn't tell whether um, physicians were using AFib dosing, whether they're using VTE dosing. What we know for a fact is they could not have been using the very low dosing because that actually wasn't available to, for purchase. You couldn't use that dosing until very late in 2018 after it received FDA approval. So maybe in the last year of our data set, there could have been a few of those that sort of snuck in there. But at that time, the uh, Voyager trial wasn't even done. It was still an ongoing trial. And that was a trial looking at those post-procedural patients. Um, so we're trying to correct that in the database moving forward so that we will have that information. We did a study that was actually published in 2020 in Journal of Vascular Surgery where we surveyed uh, vascular surgeons. We just surveyed the physicians that were in our state. So this is a very low end, of course. Um, but one of the questions we asked these vascular surgeons was, uh, you know, how often are you prescribing these DOAX for a high-risk bypass? So how often are you using this therapeutic formulation of this anticoagulant sort of off-label? And what we found is that 70% of them were using it every time or most of the time. So it seems like something that's it's at least locally in our state had been adopted into practice, even without you know, specific data around it um, for these patients. And about um, 60 or 65% of respondents said that this was an area where we needed a lot more data and a lot more information. Well, well it sounds like we've already moved beyond the, uh, the early adopter phase. <laughs> you know, yes. of, of the diffusions of innovation and where we're now getting to the laggards, it seems like. Actually, along that lines, I have a question because if it's, if there's no randomized trial and I'm, I don't know if um, there's an FDA indication for this, it may be difficult to get insurance approval to, to prescribe an off-label drug or a drug for an off-label indication. So what, how does that factor on, into, into your decision and, and kind of walk me, walk me through it in a difficult patient? 
Sure, honestly, um, and I'll, I'll let Danielle speak for herself because I think we are in two different sort of practice locations and it may be um, different from you know where I am to where she is. But for me, a lot of it uh, comes down to two things, the, the patient and you're absolutely right, then sure. So I practice in two different locations. I practice in a university location and I practice um, at the VA. And when I practice at the university location, there's a little bit more leeway as it comes to you know, having patients that have Medicare or private insurance that is more willing to, to pay for these DOACs. And it comes down to the patient. So some patients um, uh, you know, are, are fine doing anticoagulation monitoring. Some patients have to, you know, for instance, if they have renal disease, we don't really have a choice about it. Um, and those patients, fine, we do a vitamin K antagonist. I try and give them the option of a DOAC if I think they would be a good fit for it. So if they, if their renal, um, if their creatinine is sufficient, so they don't have severe renal disease that's outside the parameters of dosing and the same for BMI, those are the two things that sort of um, will trigger us to look at whether DOAC might be unsuitable. Um, and in the absence of that, if we can get insurance approval, absolutely offer it for these patients. Um, at the VA, because the VA is a little bit more restrictive and the VA is wonderful in many, many ways, but they do limit DOACs um, a lot. And I think it has to do somewhat with, um, you know, with the costs associated with it, but they will not give a DOAC unless there is an FDA um, approved indication. And so high-risk bypass doesn't fall on that list. And so those patients uniformly go on vitamin K antagonists and that's part of our mission, I think, here to get this data out and to at least, you know, raise awareness around this patient population that, you know, because it doesn't come up commonly um, and because there will likely never be a randomized control trial, are likely to never be able to receive this drug, you know, or the, this class of drugs. Um, so those are the, the sort of three things I look at. Danielle, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's unfortunate that the VA, I also work at the university side as well as the VA. And on the university side, I can say, unless there's a contraindication, we almost always prescribe DOACs as kind of a first line, unless a, you know, a exception to those rules like Dr. Obi had mentioned. And then at the VA, you know, we try to get the DOACs approved, but a lot of times we're, um, only able to get them approved if say they have another indication like atrial fibrillation or something like that. And they just happen to have another indication to be on a DOAC. Um, and, you know, I think it's unfortunate. So I think that's one nice thing about this paper is it's getting the word out that this is an issue. And I think, you know, seeing that there's no increased risk of thrombosis or bleeding in, in both of those groups that it definitely shows that there's a benefit for the DOAC group. I'm just thinking aloud here, but I wonder if um, having a treatment complication, for example, like a hematoma or supertherapeutic dosing or graft thrombosis. So I wonder if having a treatment complication on the vitamin K uh, antagonist would, would, um, would, would open the door to allow you to prescribe a second line agent in that case, because the patient failed the, uh, the first line agent. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't come up with that in terms of the VA of having someone on a vitamin K antagonist and switching them to a DOAC. Um, I feel like a lot of the people that have been on vitamin K antagonists for high-risk bypasses, those bypasses may have occluded or, you know, they're so used to their vitamin K antagonists that we don't necessarily see a lot of those patients anymore. Thank you. Um, 
getting back to your manuscript. So in the discussion, one of the benefits you identified in the study was um, shorter hospital length of stay in the DOAC group, uh, presumably due to the time required to reach the therapeutic INR range for warfarin. Um, what are your thoughts about discharging the patient immediately on, on therapeutic enoxaparin and then utilizing an outpatient warfarin clinic to adjust the dose? Is this something that you do in your practice? Yeah, I feel like um, we don't usually do bridges in practice. Um, a lot of times, you know, if, if we can get them on a DOAC, we'll just um, initially postoperatively, because of risk of bleeding, depending on how the operation went, a lot of times we'll restart them on a heparin infusion. And we'll actually restart them on a heparin infusion at a flat rate. Um, we called it at Michigan where um, I trained, where Dr. Obi is voodoo heparin. Um, and we will put them at a flat rate of 500 units per hour. And then eventually over the next, you know, 12 to 24 hours, we'll up them to therapeutic anticoagulation. And then if they've shown that they're good for 48 hours with therapeutic heparin, that's usually when I'll start a DOAC. In terms of the vitamin K antagonist patients, a lot of times we don't necessarily um, bridge them with Lovenox because we'll just start Coumadin. Um, I think I have seen quite a few patients return with bleeding issues when we have discharged, when we saw more patients being bridged onto Coumadin, because a lot of patients would forget to stop taking the Lovenox. And so you'd give them, you'd kind of be guesstimating how many shots they would need until they became therapeutic. And a lot of these patients would get confused and they'd be taking their Lovenox and their INR was already therapeutic. And almost, uh, you know, a lot of times they'd come back to the ER with bleeding complications. So I think it's almost safer to keep them in the hospital and wait until their INR is good to go before letting them go. I'll just add that I'm really glad that you were the one to bring up voodoo heparin. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it in, uh, in, other, in other scenarios other than lower extremity bypass. So you, you guys are not the only one. You <laughs> okay, so we're not the only ones to, yes. to adhere to this totally non-evidence-based practice. Uh, um, there's a lot of voodoo out there. I'll just, I'll just add to that, that I've really um, personally have shied away um, from, from Lovenox bridging after the results of um, the bridge trial came out, which was sort of this landmark trial that's now a few years old that came out in New England Journal of Medicine. And the goal of that trial was to look at the utility of bridging after sort of all, all procedures in patients with um, atrial fibrillation of sort of moderate risk. Um, most of those patients had a, um, were not, you know, the, the, five, six score, but a little bit um, uh, lower risk for thromboembolic events. But what they found was that when you reinstituted bridging with the low molecular weight heparin is that your risk of bleeding complications were twice as much as the control group with really no benefit in terms of thromboembolism. So I personally have gotten away from it. And I think there is some risk to having the dual anticoagulant um, on board as Danielle was alluding to. We did find in a, a previous paper where we looked at patients rece you know, receiving all types of peripheral bypass, so emergency, superinguinal, all kinds that there was a little bit of a higher 30-day uh, transfusion rate with patients receiving vitamin K antagonists compared to DOACs. Now, whether that's due to bridging or not, um, hard to say, but it's, it's certainly played into my decision-making to try and avoid that if at all possible. Great, great. Well, thank you. Um, so I'll, I really want to thank Drs. Obi and Susco for taking the time to speak with me today and talking about their research study. Uh, you know, what I really enjoyed about reading this paper was the, the careful and measured tone that the authors used uh, to discuss their findings. Uh, they refrained from using causal language 
the discussion section was very well balanced, and I thought there was a, a transparent and comprehensive discussion of the study limitations. Thank you for listening to the operative work. I encourage you to read this excellent article and send us any feedback at postmaster at facs.org. Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACS Operative Word. Subscribe to the Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at facs.org slash podcast.